Chapter 8 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. This is a LibriVox recording. All the LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. Chapter 8. What is to be our next halting place? asked George of Ernest Balin, as they rode out in the rear of the party on the following morning, having waited behind to see that none of the articles removed from the wagons on the previous day had been forgotten. We have a long day's journey before us, I expect. We shall stop at Colenso, replied Ernest. Rather a neat little town, and growing fast in size and importance. It stands near the little Tagella. After that, our next halting places will be Heltmacar, then Dundee, and lastly Newcastle. We might go farther today, but I expect we shall have some trouble in passing the Mui. It is a good deal swollen by the heavy rain and the overflow of the Tagala. The flood as yet has fallen but very little. He pointed as he spoke to the river, which lay at the distance of a mile or two. George drew his rein for a moment, quite entranced by the varied features of the landscape before him. There was a stretch of green felt, reaching almost from the point where they had bivouacked to the river's banks, which were densely fringed with mimosas and willow trees, through which its waters glanced, here and there, bright in the sunshine. To the right and left the ground was broken into declivities, clothed in many places with brushwood, in others presenting picturesque outlines of rock and shrub, while in the far distance towered the range of the Drakenbergs, the grandest mountains of southern Africa. "'What are those dark objects I see floating about in the water?' inquired George, pointing with his whip to a broad bend in the river, which for some distance in both directions was free from wood on either side. "'Sea cows! What you call hippopotamuses, I declare!' cried Ernest in some surprise. "'They are not often to be seen in the Mui, but I suppose they have come down from the Tagela. "'Yes, they are hippopotamuses. I can see them clearly now. "'If we can spare the time, we may have a hippopotamus hunt. "'There are few things that are better fun. "'It requires caution, though, or there may be an ugly accident.' "'What, from an attack of the animals?' suggested George. I should have thought they were too large and unwieldy for there to be any danger from them. Ah, but there is. The banks of the river are for the most part covered very thickly with reeds or rushes, among which these creatures are accustomed to lie. When they think that an enemy is at hand, they will rush out suddenly from their covert, and their weight is so great that a blow from them would probably be fatal. Matamo here had a narrow escape from one of them once, which I dare say he will relate to you, if you like to hear it. He speaks very good English, better than you would expect, and there is nothing that he likes better than relating his adventures, which sometimes border on the marvelous. Shall I call him? By all means, said George. He is there, riding on your father's left hand. The Bequana was accordingly summoned, and he at once expressed his readiness to gratify George's curiosity. A scrimmage with a sea cow, he said. Oh yes, I remember it. It was when I was a boy. I went out fishing, and I had no gun, only an azegay with me. I caught lots of fish, but by and by I was tired, and went to sleep on the long grass. Presently I was woke up by a great noise close to me, and I saw a big sea cow coming out of the river with his mouth wide open. I thought perhaps he was going to eat the fish, or perhaps he was going to eat me. I jumped up and ran off, and the sea cow ran after me. 
I was in such a fright that I didn't see where I was running to until I found I had got into a swamp and was sinking in it. These swamps are sometimes ever so deep, and there is nothing to hold to to keep you from going down. The more you struggle, the faster you go down. I was already up to my ankles and should soon have been up to my knees when I heard the sea cow flounder in after me. He couldn't stop himself either, but was heavier than I was and went down faster. I caught him by his great big ear and scrambled onto his back. He grunted, but he couldn't help it. Then I stood on his head, gave a great jump, and just reached the bank. He grunted louder before and went down into the swamp. Ho, 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 I dare say he is still going down and hasn't got to the bottom yet. But I suppose, said George, after bestowing due praise on Matamo's story, there is no real danger if care is taken. No, sir, no danger if you take care. There are some fine sea cows there. Your father sees them too, Mr. Ernest. Mr. Balin now rode up and asked George whether he and his friend would like to take part in a hippopotamus hunt. George expressed his obligations, and presently the necessary preparations were made. All the party dismounted, leaving their horses in charge of the wagon drivers, and took their rifles, which they carefully loaded. Then they separated into two companies. One of these mounted to the top of a rocky ledge covered with creepers, among which they carefully concealed themselves, while the other, consisting of Ernest, George, and one or two followers, crept stealthily through the long weeds and grass, until they had reached a point beyond that at which the animals were lying. Some of these were basking in the sun, some standing in the water with their heads above it, others were half concealed by the long rushes, which grew thickly on the bank. She will be our best mark, whispered Ernest as he pointed to a huge female whose carcass was half in, half out of the river. It will be very difficult, as she is lying now, to kill her on the spot, but as soon as she feels the shot, she will probably rush away into the reeds or into the water. In either case, my father and Matamo, not to speak of the others, will get a good aim at her as she rises up and will be pretty safe to kill her. Anyway, you will get your shot at her, and mind you aim at her ear or her eyes. George promised acquiescence, and he and Ernest gradually crept nearer until they were within tolerably easy distance. Then George fired, but apparently did not greatly injure the beast. The whole herd sprang up with loud snortings, and those lying on the edge of the stream plunged into it. The female whom George had wounded rushed away under the cover of the rocky ledge, which at that point bordered the stream, encountering, as Ernest had anticipated, the fire of the party stationed above and the farmer's ball finished the business. The animal fell dead almost immediately at the foot of the rock, and Reggie and the others crowded to the edge to get a sight of the huge carcass. The farmer calmly reloaded, and it was well that he did so, for almost immediately afterwards there came a rushing noise from the bank above, and he caught sight of a huge male hippopotamus rushing down upon them. It was in all likelihood the mate of the female that had just been killed, and he was charging down to avenge its slaughter. With the instinctive readiness which long habit had produced, Balin raised his rifle and fired. The bullet was happily aimed. It pierced the heart of the monster and was instantly fatal. The muscular force carried it on for a few yards, and it fell dead only just short of the spot where the party was standing. Another moment or two, and its blind fury would have carried it and them over the edge of the precipice onto the rocky ledge beneath. A near thing, that, exclaimed old Balin coolly. Lads, you should always be on the lookout for this kind of thing in hippopotamus hunting. You are never safe from a charge. 
This exciting adventure would naturally have been the topic of a good deal of discussion, but so much of the morning had now passed that the farmer told them that they had no time to bestow on talking. Prime pieces were cut off from both the slain beasts and put into the cart, Matamo assuring George that they would be regarded by their friends at Colenso as rare delicacies. The whole party then returned to the wagons and prepared to cross the river, which, in its present swollen condition, it would be no easy matter to accomplish. The quantity of sand brought down by the flood, it should be remarked, presented a more serious difficulty than the depth of the stream, and all the more so because the extremely turbid state of the water made it impossible to see what the depth of the sand was. The farmer and his sons, aided by Matamo and the other servants, undertook the convoy of the larger wagon first, arguing that if that could be got across without difficulty, the smaller and slighter one in which Mrs. Balin and Clara were located would follow easily enough. Both spans of oxen were fastened to it, one in front of the other. It was hoped that the line of oxen would thus become so long that the foremost ox would reach the opposite bank before the hindmost yoke had entered it. But the river was so greatly swollen that this could not be accomplished. Matamo had to cross, with a long rope tied to the front bullock's horns, and thus guided the team, nearly all of which were swimming, to the bank. Then, with great difficulty, the oxen struggled up the opposite shore, and the big wagon was safely landed, though its contents had been completely wetted through. Men and oxen now returned across the river to undertake the transport of the second wagon. But here a terrible misfortune took place. Just as they were approaching the water, the disselboom broke in half and rendered the wagon quite unmanageable. Until this disaster was remedied, it became impossible for the oxen to draw, and, as they had not the means of mending the breakage on the spot, the wagon must necessarily remain there all night, until the damage could be repaired by workmen from Colenso. Mrs. Balin and her daughter had the option of either remaining on the bank of the river all night, or being conveyed across the river on horseback. They chose the latter, and the two young Englishmen, riding up, volunteered their services. They placed the ladies in their saddles and swam by their sides, drawing their horses after them. After this fashion, Mrs. Balin and Clara reached the bank, though almost as completely soaked through as their cavaliers. A consultation was now held. It was proposed to procure a change of clothes for the ladies, but it appeared that all their wardrobe was in a smaller wagon, and even if they could have allowed the young men a second time to encounter the stream on their account, it would have been next to impossible to bring the clothes across in a dry condition. It was presently agreed that the best course would be for the four who had been soaked through to ride straight into Colenso with Matamo as their guide, and there procure a change of clothes, while the large wagon followed at a slower pace. The riders accordingly set off and arrived in due time at the Swedish pastor's house. Mr. Bilderjik and his wife, who were old friends of the Balins and were in expectation of their arrival, were in readiness to receive them. The ladies and the young men were soon supplied with dry clothes. Carpenters were dispatched to the bank of the Moy to repair the damage done to the wagon, and a message sent up to the hotel in the main street of Colenso to provide beds for Hardy, George, and Reggie, for whom the house of the Swedish pastor could not supply sufficient accommodation. A few hours afterwards, Farmer Balin arrived with the larger wagon, and he and his sons, as well as Hardy, who was also an old acquaintance, were hospitably welcomed. In an hour or two after their arrival, the whole party sat down to a comfortable repast, at which, as Matamo had before assured George would be the case, the hippopotamus steaks formed the chief delicacy. There was nevertheless, independently of these, a very appetizing meal provided. 
Sago soup was served up, fish from the Little Tugela River, which ran close to the town, fowls and pancakes, as well as abundance of ripe fruits, loquats, oranges, peaches, bananas, and nectarines, all of them from the missionary's garden, which could only be tasted in their perfection in the climates of which they are the natives. All the party appeared to be contented with their quarters, except the indefatigable Matamo, who insisted on returning to the Moy, where he said his presence would be needed to look after the workpeople who had been sent to execute the repairs, and who, as he affirmed, were never to be trusted. As soon as he had finished his dinner, he mounted his horse and rode off. "'You have a valuable servant in that Kaffir," remarked George. "'It would not be easy to find his match, even in England.' "'Are you speaking of Matamo?' said Mr. Balin. Yes, he is a good servant, good at farm labor, and better at hunting, but he is not a Kaffir, nor a Hottentot either, but a Bequana, though a very dark-skinned one. You haven't been long enough in the country to be aware of the difference, but we old residents see it easily enough. A Bequana, said George. I think I know where their country is. On the other side of the Transvaal, isn't it? Three or four hundred miles away from here. What brought him into these parts? Well, I brought him, was the answer. I brought him to Natal about five and thirty years ago. Five and thirty years, remarked Margetts. He couldn't have been very old then. No, he was an infant, said the farmer. I was a young fellow of four or five and twenty myself, and we hadn't been so very long settled in Natal ourselves. My mother, who had been brought up a Presbyterian, though she conformed to her husband's form of belief, had once heard David Livingstone preach, and had been so impressed by him that she had never forgotten it. After my father's death, she fell into low spirits, and there was no one near about us who could give her any comfort. Nothing would satisfy her but that Mr. Livingstone must come and see her. We tried to pacify her by telling her that Mr. Livingstone, who was a great traveler, would some day come our way. You have heard of him, I suppose, gentlemen? All the world has heard of him, remarked Rivers. I should think there is hardly an Englishman but knows his history. I am not surprised to hear it. But he was a young man at the time I speak of, and was but little known. My mother, however, was bent on seeing him. She had heard that he was living at Barolong, and she was sure that he would come to visit her, and she would die if he didn't. At last I saw there was no help for it. I must travel across the country and find Mr. Livingstone out. And you went? inquired George as he paused. Yes, I went, and a terrible journey I had, and after all I couldn't find the gentleman. He had gone up the country, and it was impossible to say, they told me, when he would come back. But that was nothing to do with Matamo, and my story was to be about him. Well, I took a good stout horse and rode through what is now called the Orange Free State. It was almost wild in those days. Native tribes were living here and there, with whom I sometimes got a lodging. Though, to be sure, their crawls were not the pleasantest places in the world, even to me. Once or twice I came across the house of a Dutchman, who had immigrated thither from the Cape. "'I don't expect you got much of a welcome from them,' remarked Hardy. "'As an Englishman, I did not expect that I should,' said the farmer. "'But you see, my grandfather, old Fieter van Schulen, had been a leading man among the Dutch, and so was my brother-in-law, Cornelius. I had only to mention their names, and they were ready to do anything for me. I got on well enough until I was within a day or two rides of the village where Mr. Livingstone was believed to be living. But there a misfortune befell me. My horse, which had carried me well to that time, indeed was as quite a beast as ever I remember to have ridden, suddenly reared and plunged violently, and very nearly threw me. I got off and tried to quiet him, but he continued to struggle and would not let me remount. 
He had been bitten, I expect, remarked Hardy. That is my opinion, too. Indeed, there was a swelling on his foreleg, which looked very like the bite of a snake, but I was not sure even of that, and had no remedy at hand, even if I had known how to apply it. I soon saw that, whatever had been the cause of his illness, there was little or no hope of his recovery. His restlessness soon gave way to a kind of dull stupor. He presently lay down, stretched out his limbs, stark and rigid, and was dead in less than two hours from the time when he had been bitten. I was quite at a loss what to do. There were no trees near at hand into which I might have climbed and slept in safety. I did not know what wild animals there might be about. Remember, this was five and thirty years ago, before the settlers had driven the lions and rhinoceroses away. The country consisted of long, undulating downs, covered with tall grass, which might shelter any number of poisonous snakes, and a bite from any one of them could hardly help being fatal, seeing how far I was from any place where a remedy could be applied. So I resolved to keep on. The darkness was rapidly gathering, and the moon wouldn't rise, I knew, for several hours, but there was just enough of a glimmer in the sky to enable me to distinguish the track. So I went on, holding my double-barreled rifle ready-cocked. Dangerous work, remarked Margetts. No doubt, but it was the least danger of the two. Well, I went on, walking slowly and cautiously, and by and by I got clear of the jungle and came into some high rocky land, in the midst of which there was a Bequana village. If it had been daylight, I should have gone in at once and claimed their hospitality as an Englishman, whom I knew they would receive kindly. But by that light I was afraid of being mistaken for a boar, and then my reception would have been very different. It was likely as not that I should have been speared before I could explain the mistake they had made. I resolved to find a shelter somewhere for the night and make my appearance among the Bequanas in the morning. After looking carefully about, I took up my quarters in a cavern in the side of a long ridge of rock which overhung the village. It was December, and the night was warm, so I did not hesitate to lie down as I was on a heap of dead leaves with which the cave was half filled. I was tired out, and soon fell asleep, and, I suppose, must have lain for two or three hours, when I was awakened by the noise of guns firing and men shouting immediately over my head. I started up and looked out. The dawn had just broken and diffused a light which made it almost as easy to distinguish anything as if it had been broad day. I perceived that the village was surrounded by an armed enemy, and on a high bank on the opposite side of the village I could see a line of men armed with the long gun which the boars then carried, while at the two ends of the village strong parties, also of boars, for they had no black allies with them, were stationed. These two were armed to the teeth. I knew in a moment what had happened. The boars had attacked the village by night and were shooting the men down as they rushed in alarm out of their huts. There was no possibility of resistance or escape. The rocky ridge over my head was too high to have been stormed, even by trained soldiers, and these poor naked half-armed savages could not approach within ten yards of it. The bank opposite was almost as impossible to attack, but I did see two or three of the Bequana warriors make the attempt. Some spears were flung, but they did no execution. It was simple wholesale murder, and lasted, I should think, fully an hour by which time every male Bequana in the village was either dead or mortally wounded. It was the most shocking sight I have ever witnessed. "'Horrible indeed, sir!' exclaimed Reggie. "'What provocation do you suppose they had given the Dutchman?' "'Most likely none at all,' was the answer. "'The Bequanas in general are peaceable enough, but the Dutch, 
the Boers, that is, are bent on having slaves to work for them, and if they can't get them by what they consider fair means, will get them by foul. What do they call fair means? asked Reggie. Buying them of their parents, answered Balin. They will go to a village and demand the help of a number of women to work in their fields or gardens. These women, who dare not refuse, take their children with them, and then they will try to bargain for these, in order to make them slaves. But the Bequanas are a very affectionate people, and can very seldom be induced to sell their children. Therefore, as the Boers would tell you, they are obliged to take them by force. "'You are joking with us, sir, are you not?' said George. "'Indeed, I am not.' They think that not only is it fair and right that the natives should work without pay for them, but that it is their duty to oblige them so to work. On what possible grounds, Mr. Balin? Because they are an inferior race, over whom the Boers have a natural right. This is no pretense. They really think so. The Boers are, after their fashion, a very religious people. They believe Almighty God has given the black races to be their servants, and that they are only carrying out His will when they reduce them to slavery. Some of them even believe that it is their mission to kill all except those who are thus kept in bondage. They liken themselves to the Israelites when they entered the Promised Land, and the natives to the Canaanites, whom they were to exterminate. And their quarrel with us really is that we won't allow them to carry out this idea? asked Margetts. At the bottom, I am not sure it is not, replied Balin. It is certain that they would carry it out if it were not for the English. Their usual practice is to do what they did on the occasion I have been telling you about. They circulate a rumor that an attack is going to be made upon them by some tribe. The rumor is almost certain to be false, for the Bequanas are a very peaceable people. But as soon as the report has taken wind, they march out in force, generally taking with them a number of native allies. These surround the village, keeping the men back with their azagays, while the boars fire in safety over their heads until all the males have been destroyed. They then carry off the women, children, and cattle. Horrible! exclaimed Reggie. I shall hate these boars like poison. Why, they must be the most awful cowards, as well as hypocrites. I don't know about that, Reggie, remarked George. They don't want to encounter danger, if they can help it, no doubt. But it doesn't follow that they wouldn't fight, if there was the necessity for doing so. They are like Wilkin Flamick in The Betrothed. You remember what he says. He was ready to fight for life or property, if it was needed. But a sound skin was better than a slashed one for all that. But I thought you told us, sir, that the Boers in your story attacked the Bequana village without allies. So I did, answered the farmer. But they knew the ground, and were aware that it would be impossible for the Bequanas to attack them, so that there was no need for the natives to accompany them on that occasion. But to go on with my story... I told you it was a bright morning, and so it continued for nearly an hour. But after that, thick clouds came up, and it grew almost dark. The boars remained in the position they had taken up till the forenoon. But about half an hour after the firing had ceased, I heard a noise as if someone was moving somewhere near me. I looked out, and I could just make out that a Bequana woman, who had been mortally wounded by a bullet, had crawled to that spot with an infant of a year old in her arms. I suppose she had some idea of concealing herself in the hollow of the rocks, not knowing that her hurt was to death. I crept down and took the child from her arms. She was just at the last gasp, but I think she gave it over to me willingly, fancying that I should treat it kindly. I took it back with me into the cave, and remained in concealment until the boars had departed, 
which they did about the middle of the next day, I was fortunate enough to reach the farm of a friendly Hollander, who sold me another horse and provisions enough to carry me through the most dangerous parts of the journey. The infant, which I called Matamo, from the name of the Bequana village which I had seen destroyed, proved strong and healthy, and we both reached Haklutzkluf safe and sound. And your mother? asked Margetz. My mother was at first terribly disappointed about Mr. Livingstone, but when she heard the tale of the destruction of the Bequana village and the rescue of the infant, she was so moved by pity for it that I think she forgot everything else. She took it under her special charge. Up to the time of her death, three years afterwards, Matamo was her chief care and delight. The boy grew up strong and healthy, and has, as I told you, been an invaluable servant to us. And you have well deserved that he should, remarked Mr. Bilderjik. You have had him baptized and educated and brought up in the Christian faith. You should add that. I would that many masters in South Africa could say the same. End of chapter 8 Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA.